my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Listen every Thursday or join the conversation anytime on Instagram at What's Her Story Podcast. Joanne Lee Molinaro is known as a Korean vegan. She is a lawyer turned TikTok superstar and New York Times bestselling author. The Korean vegan. Why the name? Well, I think the Korean vegan was actually given to me by my then boyfriend, now husband. I think we were like getting up in the morning and this was before I was fully 1000% committed to being vegan. And I think he was trying to encourage me. And so he was like, man, that risotto you made yesterday was so good. You should start a YouTube channel. You can call yourself the Korean vegan. <laughs> and uh, that was like, I was like, actually, that's, that's, uh, that's not a bad idea. And I started a YouTube channel that night called the Korean vegan, and it just stuck. <laughs> so Joanne, at that time, you were a practicing full-time attorney. And what was that journey like? 
to go from being an attorney to then suddenly saying, okay, I'm going to start a YouTube channel. When I started The Korean Vegan in 2016, I was, let's see, I had just made partner actually um, when I decided to adopt a plant-based diet. And I was just talking about this to my husband the other day, and I'm sure both of you can relate because I know you have had incredible milestones in your own life. But one of the nice things about being a lawyer and going to law school is all of the finish lines are set for you. You, they're, they're all there. You don't really need to set them for yourselves. You don't need to create any of your own goals because, oh, graduate from law school, pass the bar exam, get into a big law firm, you know, make senior counsel, make partner. It's all there for you. But when I made partner, all of a sudden I was like, I have no goals. I've made all of the goals. I've checked all of the boxes on this list and now I have to come up with my own. It was incredibly intimidating. It was a little frightening. And for a couple of years, I felt very lost. And I'm really glad that I had something like the Korean Vegan, which was sort of my side hobby. I don't even call it a hustle because it didn't make any money. I lost lots and lots and lots of money <laughs> with this hustle, if you will. But it was something nice to have that made me feel a little grounded, but it also made me feel very human. Like I was like, all right, I'm not just this robot inside of this machine. I have a human hobby and I really like doing it. How soon after that did you set goals around the hobby? I had no goals around the hobby for many years. Again, a goal was delivered to me in 2018. Somebody saw my Instagram account, put me in touch with a lit agent who then put me in touch with a big time publisher. And they're like, okay, we would like for you to write a cookbook. You have this many months to do it. So again, you know, the, the goal was placed in front of me. It wasn't one that I created on my own. And part of that was because I didn't need the pressure I just was like, hey, I'm a partner, I'm a new partner, and that's a lot of work in and of itself. I want to develop a practice, I want to have my own book of clients, I want to be successful at what I'm doing in this career. I don't need more pressure to create more goals in a side hobby. To the extent that one was created for me with the book deal, how exciting was that? It was really, really fun and exciting, but again, I had very little ambition with regard to the book, I was like, I will be happy to see it in print. And if, you know, seven people buy it, that will make me very happy. <laughs> At what point did this not become a hobby and there become goals and ambition shifted over to this? The current life that I have, this reality, it was not something that I dreamed. Like, I could not have even imagined this when I signed my book deal in 2018. I think that this shift occurred probably in 2020 when I started posting on TikTok. I started posting on TikTok for the same reason that everybody else either joined TikTok or started posting themselves. It was because of the pandemic, quarantine, everything that was happening in the world with George Floyd. It was just like too overwhelming. And so I went onto TikTok because I needed a little bit of distraction and something to take my mind off of. A, an immense amount of anxiety surrounding everything that was happening in the world and in my own life personally and professionally. And then, you know, it's hard not to be inspired by the, you know, Gen Z, 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 Z that you call them. They're very inspiring. And I was like, you know what? I do have a cookbook coming out in, you know, less than a year. I'll bet my editor and publisher would really appreciate it if I, you know, built out this TikTok. You know, maybe I could have like another 10,000 followers to add to my Instagram, which had 70,000 followers at the time. 
And so that's what I did. And before I knew it, I had viral videos, like a lot of them. Um, and I had probably close to a million followers in just a few months. And it was then that I decided, all right, like I actually could do something with this. Not just like, you know, at the time I wasn't thinking career, but at the very least, I was hoping that it would help with book sales. And I think fast forward probably about six months after the end of 2020 was when I decided, all right, I'm going to go for the New York Times bestseller list. It was only then, like a few months before my book came out, that we made it a real priority. And what did that look like? Well, I think that it looked ugly. <laughs> I'll be very honest with you, Sam. I mean, because, and Sam, you've, you have experience with, you know, getting on bestseller lists and stuff like that. So much of it is, you know, not transparent and, you know, really, really competitive. You got to know what other books are coming out at that time, you know, in your category. And, you know, there's no real formula to it. There's some some formula like, okay, make sure you sell a lot of books, obviously. But honestly, from an internal and personal perspective, it was ugly because I approached this goal the same way I approached everything else that I had in my legal career was like, I've got to knock it out of the park and I've got to do it like, you know, months before it's due. That That's my personality. If somebody sets a goal for me, I want to make sure that by the time the deadline arrives, I'm like well past, you know, whatever is expected of me because I hate being short on anything. But as you know, there's no way to gauge whether you're going to make it before the the deadline, if you will. And so a lot of it was just intense anxiety, um, doing everything I possibly can to sell as many pre-orders as I could, you know, getting frustrated by the numbers I was getting from my sales team. Like, that's not enough. We need to be double that right now and, and things like that. Um, but at the end, you know, when my publisher... They set up this like surprise Zoom meeting with my husband while I was in the middle of like podcasts and things like that. And, you know, they they broke the news to me and it was just it was amazing. I mean, I started bawling like on the spot. <laughs> what his role has your husband played? It sounds like he's been quite an inspiration for your career since since he had the title boyfriend. My husband is an artist. He's a concert pianist. So he has never uh, had a job, I think, other than a brief stint as a valet for a hotel or something like that, where he's worked for, <laughs> yeah, like he's never worked at anything other than his craft and his passion, which is music. And so his mindset is so different from mine. He's not opposed to taking some pretty serious risks in his career. He hates the idea of working for anyone other than himself. And the other thing that I admire so much about him is he doesn't need a bajillion dollars. He doesn't need to be rich and famous. He just wants to live a comfortable life that allows him to travel, eat the food that he likes to eat, be with the people he loves while doing the kind of work that makes him happy and fulfilled. And that mindset was so different from the classic child of immigrants mindset that I had, which is like, no, you like scarcity mentality. You must, you know, hoard all the monies and like, you know, do all the hard work and, you know, all that stuff. And this idea of, well, why not just, you know, live comfortably and like not, you know, kill yourself and do what you love. It, it was just um, really nice to be with somebody who not only encouraged that in me, but displayed that 
demonstrated that every single day of his own life. And I think that more than any conversation that we had or any, you know, piece of advice that he would give, just watching how he lived his life so fulfilled every day was the biggest motivator for me to finally take that risk and make the jump from being a full-time lawyer to being a full-time content creator and writer. Your first marriage wasn't like this. It definitely was not like that. (laughs) If you had stayed in that marriage, would you have become the Korean vegan? 100% no. There there are so many reasons why. I mean, the most obvious of which is I don't think that I would have ever gone vegan. Um, Or if I had, it would have been much later in my life. And I'm not sure if I would have had the energy at that point (laughs) to to do a side hustle. Um, So definitely not. I also, financially speaking, wouldn't have had the ability to fund a hobby like the one that I had. I was like the total breadwinner in, in my original relationship. And so it wasn't a situation where I would have had any latitude or flexibility. I would have been incredibly focused on continuing to maintain financial stability in our situation. And also, I wouldn't have had the emotional bandwidth to do it. I just wouldn't. I couldn't even watch sad movies. Like, that was the thing. That's when I knew, like, something's very strange in this relationship. I can't even watch emotional movies because they were so draining and so exhausting for me. I had, like, zero emotional bandwidth to to do anything other than hold my marriage together. And that was so taxing to me. I would never have had anything left to share with anyone else. How did you leave? I think sometimes the hardest part about leaving is knowing that you have to do it. That was the hardest part for me. I was like, well, I love my husband. I love him. Why the heck would I leave him? (laughs) Like, you don't leave somebody that you love. And I really loved him. And it wasn't until I think that I felt there was a line that was crossed in my own head where I was like, all right, now, like, I really can't deny that the situation is is not healthy for either of us. And I wish that that line had been much closer, but it took a lot for me to say, all right, like I can't I can't pretend anymore. Like this is this is really wrong for both of us, but particularly for me. And once that line was crossed, in some ways it became a little bit easier for me to just say, all right, I have to now start taking steps to exit this relationship. It wasn't overnight. I wish that I could say that it was, but even after that line was crossed, I was like, no, maybe we can make it work, like with counseling and things like that. And I think seeing a therapist, I did start seeing a marriage therapist by myself. She was the one who was like, I will tell you right now that this relationship is irretrievably broken. There's nothing you can do to fix it. You just need to start taking steps to leave. I came up with an Excel spreadsheet that had multiple tabs and timelines and goals. And like within, (laughs) yes, and I was like, within three months, you will do this. Within six months, you will have done this. And, you know, so like that was really helpful to me to like put it down on paper. It became very real once I saw that. And then once it became real, the goal, the goal-oriented Joanne, you know, kicked into overdrive. I was like, well, if this is for three months, then I'm going to do it in two months. If this is scheduled for six months, I'm going to do it in four months. And I gave myself a year to exit the relationship, but I think I ultimately did it in like six to seven months. And what did your parents think? So 
I remember this is like a painful but also powerful memory. The day that the night actually was like three in the morning, that thing sort of crossed into a point of no return. I remember I picked up my dog, my daisy girl at the time, and I ran out of my house. I was barefoot. I was in my pajamas and I was horrified by everything that had happened. And, you know, my my intent was just to get to my parents' house, who luckily lived in the same townhouse complex as I did. And I was so nervous, even in my own heart, to show up at their doorstep at three in the morning with, you know, no shoes on and just my dog, because I didn't want them to be frightened or nervous for me. But I also knew that I couldn't stay in my house under the circumstances. So I ran there and I show up and, you know, of course my parents were sleeping, but my mom opens the door and this is not a new thing for my mom. I had done it so many times. So immediately she knew what was going on. And so she said, come on in. And I was crying and hysterical and, and I kept saying, I need to get a divorce. I need to get a divorce. I can't do this. And she asked me what happened and I told her and, and she said, yeah, you need to get a divorce. And I remember this so clearly because my mother, she doesn't get angry at him. She often gets angry at me for staying and always going back. But I remember what she said that time. And she said in Korean later on that night, if he shows his face in front of me, I'm going to beat the shit out of him. And that was very telling for me because it showed me that my mom was in a lot of pain over what was happening, but she was also very much in my side. She really took my side. And that was so important because Asian parents, they don't always take your side if you're talking about divorce. That is not a thing that they're really cool with. And I was very lucky that my mom and even my dad were very supportive of me leaving that marriage and starting a new life. You're really open in your videos. Have you always been this open? I think my personality is definitely more open than not. I like talking to people one-on-one. -on -one. I'm, I'm not good in crowds, as I'm sure you saw, Amy. I'm not good in crowds. I'm not good in large groups. I'm very intensely shy in those settings. But when you sit me down with one person, I love listening to people I like hearing them tell their stories. I like hearing them tell me about, well, what did you do today? What do you think is interesting? What is the struggle of your heart right now? And I think the best way to elicit that kind of information from a person is sharing your own story, disarming them by disarming yourself, saying, hey, you can be vulnerable with me and I'll show you how. I'll be vulnerable with you first. So that is sort of my personality only because I think that I really enjoy connecting on a deep level with people. That said, I have also learned, particularly over the past year, how taxing it can be on me emotionally and mentally to always lay myself bare and also make myself susceptible to criticism and gaslighting and people who are just like, oh, she's open, let's go attack her. <laughs> I get that a lot as well. So I think right now it's sort of a lesson in trying to balance my vulnerability with my own kind of mental health. And now a quick break. 
My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. 
join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What was your childhood like? Well, my childhood is really safe and wonderful. I was just thinking about that today, like how lucky I am um, to have my parents be such lovely and wonderful people. I know not all parents are that, you know, like that. I just lucked out and had really wonderful, loving, safe environment. I was just thinking today how much I miss my mom and dad because I'm in California and they live in Chicago. I was just there a couple days ago for an event and just sitting in my mother's sunlit dining room and eating peeping pop with my mom and my dad is just such an incredibly safe space for me. And I was like, the only reason it's safe for me today is because they made it safe for me back when I was three, four, five, six, seven, eight years old. So it was a very safe environment. I had both my grandmothers, my you know maternal and paternal grandmother in my life very much. My paternal grandmother basically raised me between the age of three and 14 years old. And just having her there and constantly guarding and protecting me was really beautiful. But I think like many immigrant children, because my parents you know, didn't speak English as well as I did. My grandmother didn't speak any English at all. Um, because of the adults in my life were not as equipped to operate on the level that I saw on television, that I saw with my friends' parents, I did feel at times a little bit burdened to be an adult, even when I was only eight or nine years old. I had to do the things that other, you know, kids' parents did, like you know, read out loud the permission slip and translate it for them or type up letters for my father or, you know, get on the phone with customer service and and handle things that I don't know that many eight or nine year olds were doing um, other than if their parents couldn't speak the language as well. So there was a little bit of that. And, you know, but honestly, in retrospect, especially given what children have to go through today, I had a wonderfully safe and beautiful childhood. You have a video that kind of talks a little bit about what you're talking about right now and really goes into what's happening in the AAPI community in America right now, where we're seeing instances of hate crimes and violence, which I'm sure we've always seen. You've become a voice in, in this community. Did you do that intentionally? I think that I have always been passionate about the eradication of racism. That's something that has always been important to me. And somebody was asking me, like, how do you find your passion? And I'm like, well, for some of us, you just find what makes you really, really mad. And the opposite is your passion. <laughs> and that's how I, you know, that's how I became passionate about advocating on behalf of, you know, um, anti-racism, basically. I just, I just wish that there was no racism in the world. That is my heart's desire. And so on that side, it was just very natural for me to tell stories with that in mind. I mean, that's why I tell the stories about immigrant families to the extent that there are people out there who don't know uh, too much about what it's like being an immigrant family in the United States or may have less experience with it. All I wanted to do was open them up to thinking about, oh, well, things might be a little bit different. Let me maybe explain to you how. What I didn't do on purpose and what I didn't expect was sort of this avalanche of members of that community 
um, you know, children of immigrants or immigrants themselves reaching out to me and saying, oh my God, I finally feel like somebody's telling my story. I finally feel like somebody sees me and I'm so grateful for that. I didn't expect that. That was not why I started doing what I did. It's not why I started speaking out. It was very new to me. And that was really important because I think it helped me to focus a little bit more about what my messaging needs to be. It helped me to be more sensitive and careful about that new responsibility, which is I want to make sure that everyone feels included and safe in this space. And part of that means that these people feel seen and heard. And so it's not something that I did intentionally or by design, but it's something that I take very, very seriously now. How is your life organized? I think that a lot of our listeners who hear this who might be in more traditional careers can't even fathom what it's like to wake up every day without someone else creating that agenda. And you have been on both sides. So how do you organize your day, your week? I'm, you know, still relatively new to this rather structuralist world. And it can be daunting. Like at first it's like, wow, this is so great. I get to wake up and, you know, just do YouTube videos all day. How nice is that, you know? But like when you don't have a strategy and when you don't have a goal in mind, it becomes a little bit um, anxiety inducing, at least for me, because I was like, well, th what is the purpose of, of these things that I'm doing? Is it just to get a million views? Like that can't be right. Like that, that's not the goal here. Right. So we think that Earlier in the year, what I did is I sat down and I put together a very rudimentary business plan with a lot of milestones in it. Like, hey, I want to grow my YouTube account to this much. I want to start a product line here. I want to really work on, you know, you know, videos in Korean for the South Korean, um, you know, folks. I want to do a podcast. Like these were things that I kind of wrote down. And then, you know, just like with the spreadsheet for divorcing my ex-husband, it was pretty similar. Like I had multiple tabs and timelines and miniature sub goals and things like that. Every day waking up in the beginning, like I said, was a little directionless. But now what I do is I sit down every week and it's a calendar appointment in my calendar on Wednesday afternoon and I map out the rest of the week. What am I doing tomorrow? What am I doing the day after? What are the videos that I want to get posted? Um, what are the times that I'm doing interviews or PR and things like that? I think that really helps me. And putting them in my calendar, not just like putting them on some, you know, notebook somewhere. I need it in my calendar so that when I'm scheduling sort of one-off things like a podcast or an interview or a trip, I know that I have to build around some of these other things that I'm doing. Otherwise, like they won't get done and it'll throw me off. And then once again, I'm stuck sitting there being like, I feel totally directionless and unproductive. Take us back 2020 you decide to launch a TikTok channel. I think for many of us, it sounds like so idealistic, right? You start a TikTok channel and then it goes viral and then you have millions of people watching you very quickly. How did that happen? I mean, did you study the algorithm or was it truly just fortune in some way? It was totally luck. I, I really wish that I could, I, like, because I know like the you know, we all want to reverse engineer these types of situations because that helps to reduce some of the anxiety that attends trying something new. But honestly, I, I had no 
intention of going viral. In fact, my first viral video, I deleted it because it scared me so much. Um, so <laughs> I deleted it because I was so frightened I would get fired. <laughs> um, so like it, it was like totally accidental. I mean, it. I had no idea how to use TikTok. I was just like, all right, I'll just throw my phone up on the wall and I'll just do this and see what happens. And so there isn't any rhyme or reason to it. I, I actually was talking to somebody who um, hosts a really popular food podcast, and he just invited all these viral TikTokers to give him pointers on creating a viral TikTok. And I was like, there's just no formula for it. Like if you try too hard, actually, that will probably mean that you're not going to go viral because these kids, they're so smart. They can tell when you're trying too hard. And I feel like there's a little bit of that to what's happening here. So it's it's by accident most of the time. I will say some people believe that TikTok tries to reel you in to creating content. So they might reward you with an early viral video, like your first, you know, 10 videos or something like that to make you addicted to posting because then you're like, oh, I need to get another one. I don't know if that's true. It was true in my situation. I had only been posting for like a week um, before I had my first viral video. How has the production value changed from that first video to now? It's completely different. And you can go and look at some of my earlier videos. Obviously, I was just using my phone, which wasn't even like a really good phone at that time. And I was, you know, not really capitalizing on any of the nice little tools that you have on TikTok to make it really pretty and sound nice. Now, you know, I have a studio, I have three cameras going on at the same time. I use Final Cut for my editing. I use this really nice microphone uh, for my voiceovers. I spend quite a bit of time writing the stories that go along with my videos. So it can be a process. It can take anywhere from, I would say, like six to 12 hours to create one 60 second video. And how many times a week do you post? So right now, I'm trying to get back into the groove of posting about three to five times a week. Um, for a while, it was like I was lucky if I was posting once a week. And that was because I you know, was relocating from Chicago to California. And it was a little bit hard to get everything like where it needed to be. But right now, I'm hopeful to get back into that groove and you know, create pr predictability with my community there so they know that they can count on, you know, steady stream of content from the Korean vegan. When you say three to five videos a week, is it YouTube or TikTok or what are we talking about? How does that divide itself? Well, I, I post on all of the platforms. So I'm pretty active on, I would say, four social media platforms, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. I do customize my content for each of those platforms. Like I don't post a lot of video content on Twitter. Mostly it's just like my personal thoughts or thinking. You know how Twitter is a little different from the other three. The other three though are all very conducive to short content, you know, short digital content, which is anything less than 60 seconds. So I'll often post on TikTok first and then I'll go to YouTube and then I'll go to Instagram. Instagram is its own little thing. <laughs> I feel like Instagram is my middle child. I always liken these to my children, but I feel like Instagram is very much like middle child. They need a little bit more attention from me and they're used to it because I've been on that platform the longest and you get the caption where you can write pretty significantly and you get the Instagram stories. So 
it takes a little bit more work on Instagram, but basically I make one 60 second video and I repurpose it for all those three platforms, sometimes also Twitter. And now a quick break. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. 
tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What will your career look like in 10 years? I don't know. It could go one of two ways, I would say. And then and in this, I'm being totally honest and completely candid. Like I'm, there's like a part of me that's like, I want to be the CEO and mogul of like a digital multimedia enterprise, you know, and I feel like there's a part of me that could do that. Um, you know, certainly we're growing our uh, YouTube and our other digital platforms. And that's certainly part of that strategy. On the other hand, I go back to what I said about my husband. One of the things that I found so attractive about him is that he was like, hey, I just want to do something that I love. I want to do it well every single day. I want to challenge myself to be the best at it as I possibly can. But that doesn't mean that I need to be making a million dollars or becoming famous. I'm okay if I make just enough money to go to Rome every summer and eat the best pasta. And there's something to that that's very alluring. I would not mind if in 10 years you found me in a small, beautiful home in Sardinia, you know, eating chickpeas and <laughs> fresh greens every day, running in the morning and writing my next book. I, I think that's also kind of lovely. Aim, do you want to go to the speed round now? Joanne, who leaves you starstruck? Oh, God, Padma Lakshmi, for sure. <laughs> what are you reading right now? I literally just finished We Were Dreamers, which is the uh, memoir by Simu Liu, which I enjoyed so thoroughly. I haven't picked up my next book, though. What is your morning routine? My morning routine right now is I get out of bed. I carry my dog downstairs because we sleep on the second floor, and he's very arthritic, and he can't go down the stairs anymore. Uh, take him outside, um, give him his medication, beg him to take his medication, more like it. Um, and then my husband and I go to our favorite local restaurant here, and we share breakfast. Usually we just share a bagel sandwich together, and then we come home and we start the day. I haven't been working out. The past month, I got a marathon this fall and training starts in July. So I've been like taking it super easy before I start training. What are you and your husband eating for dinner tonight? Oh, okay. So I made this amazing casserole yesterday. I love casseroles. I think that is directly a product of the fact that we ate Korean food all the time growing up. And I always was so fascinated by the American casserole. <laughs> and so, <laughs> God. I love casserole. And I made this casserole yesterday with my vegan version of cream of mushroom with pasta and potatoes and um, breadcrumbs. And it is just so delicious. I added some artichokes to it too. It's so amazing. It came out perfectly. So we're going to eat that. I have some leftover green beans that I haven't cooked up yet. So we'll just do a quick saute with a little bit of vegan butter and extra virgin olive oil and some garlic. It's what we had for dinner yesterday and it was so good. It deserves an encore. So Lou Burns has been listening to the interview and he joins us 
with the male perspective, and I don't want to call his final question a zinger, but sometimes it is. <laughs> to hear that you deleted your first viral, like I would go nuts if it was me. Like I got something that everybody likes, <laughs> but you were a you were afraid to lose your job at that like wow that was a lot huh it was really scary yeah why so so contrary to what many people probably think my first viral video didn't have anything to do with food it was not a food video it was me being a lawyer <laughs> i had posted sort of a you know fun day in the life video of a lawyer in chicago under quarantine and it really was taking people through the day, just like you guys were asking about, like, what is your day like? You know, first part lawyer, second part content creator. And that's really what I wanted to show people that you could do both. And a woman lawyer commented, it looks like you don't work very hard. And it was so enraging. She was just very, I don't know why they had to say that to me. And it was so disheartening to find out that she was a fellow female lawyer. And I was like, you know, like all the kids, I was like, I'm going to clap back at this. And so that's what I did. I clapped back, if you will, at this comment. And that went viral. I basically said, here's, you know, 70 reasons why I think you're wrong. And oh, by the way, like, why are you promoting this sort of toxic productivity? Like, do I need to be like killing myself, like in order to meet your approval? Is that what it takes to be a successful woman at a large law firm is to basically work myself out of existence and not be happy and not have any side hustles, not have any hobbies, just focus on work? Is that what I'm supposed to do? I wanted to provide a balanced video on my life. And I work very hard. At the time, I was working super hard. I was actually, I think I had just come off a trial or was preparing for trial. So, you know, like it was insane. And so I put all of this in the video and it went viral. And the next day I got a call <laughs> from my um, CEO and he was like, what is this TikTok that you're doing? You know, he was like, I don't know what it is. And, you know, I just think that maybe it's a little condescending your tone and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all right, you know what? I'm, I'm deleting it. Don't worry. I will never do this again. Um, it really frightened me. I remember I got on the phone with my mentor. You know, everyone has a mentor. Even as a partner, I still think of her as a mentor. And I was like, Ellen, oh my God, I have 35,000 followers on TikTok. And, and this, you know, there was like all these news articles about the lawyer who clapped back on TikTok and stuff like that. And I was like, I can't do this. And, you know, CEO called me and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I'm going to lose my job. And I almost started to cry. But you know, Lou, my husband was so mad that I deleted it. He was like, why would you do this? You should be so happy. Like they should be happy. You know, you're bringing so much attention and this is a totally backwards way for you to deal with this. And I was like, no, no, babe. I can't even go to sleep at night. I need to delete it. But you know, like obviously like, you know, we all got over it. My firm got over it. My firm's management got over it. I got on the phone with the firm PR team and we got to an understanding. I create quite a bit of political content that sometimes has nothing to do with food and they're okay with it as long as I'm very clear that this is my opinion and mine alone. Joanne's story is so interesting on so many different levels. Amy, I love her. She's awesome. I'm really so into her. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. Okay, this is what stood out to me most about her story. 
I, I don't know why. It's going to make me cry again just talking about it. It made me, because you know, you're the one who usually cries in the interview. In real life, I cry more than you, but on our interviews, you cry more than I do. And for some reason, this is making me cry again. Look, I, I think the part where she talked about how her now husband was a role model because he chose something he loved to do. And the way he lives his life is so beautiful to me, the way he lives his life to eat the food he wants, to spend time with the people he wants and live in a place that's comfortable for him. Like that should be the goal for everyone, right? So how many people would be able to pick up and just pursue their passion if they had that freedom? And it seems like he was like a role model for freedom, more than even what he said, just the way he lived his life, lives. I mean, I agree with you. I have the chill, not crying, but it did give me the chills because it was this, sometimes we see which with such simple clarity what it is meant to be because it can get it, life, all of it can get so lost in the hustle, in the, I need this, I need that, I want this, right? When it can and should be so close to the heart of what, what do you need and what do you really need and what makes you happy? What gives you joy? And I think that like Joanne reoriented her life around that idea. And I think it's so interesting that like another person can open up your entire world to how you view things. I mean, it's really beautiful what she has found in her husband and their story together and how he encourages her. When we think of a spouse encouraging you, you don't typically think of encouraging you because they represent freedom, right? We think of it as like someone who's your biggest cheerleader or someone who's financially supporting you or someone who's, you know, doing some of the work at home so you can go travel or whatever it is. But this is almost a new definition of a supportive spouse. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would appreciate it if you'd leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, and our male perspective, Lou Burns.